Hello, I'm James in London. I'm Rochelle in North Carolina. I'm Nathan in Colorado. And we are Friends in Formation, a podcast where three very different friends take on questions about life and faith with the goal to listen and learn and to help each other go further with God. Friends in Formation is produced by Renovare, a Christian renewal effort that offers resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. We'd love you to join the conversation. So please email us at friends at renovare.org. That's friends at R-E-N-O-V-A-R-E dot org. So good to have you all here, and let's begin the show. Okay, I've got a question for us, and this comes to us from Lawrence. Why do some people find the practice of silence and solitude so hard, and not letting the distractions of the day interrupt a time of listening for God's voice? Hmm. (laughs) Some people, huh? Hi, Lawrence. I'm Rochella, also known as Some People. <laughs> well then you must give us the solution. Well, I can I can tell you at least part of the problem, I think, is that for years I avoided silence because I was afraid of what I might hear. And I think I finally realized that I had some old ideas about God that were lingering. It was not only difficult for me to enter into silence because I like to talk. But it was also difficult for me to enter into really wanting to hear what God might say to me. I was afraid God might be saying to me, you idiot, aren't you ever going to get this right? I had to learn that God's voice was one of always loving and drawing and that God wanted to interact with me and not as a disappointed deity, not as a disapproving father but as someone who really loved me and wanted to hang out with me. So how's that for going deep quick? (laughs) I too used to struggle with wanting to avoid him. If you've got an angry view of who God is, then why would you want to hang out with him? I certainly had that view and didn't want to hang out with him. So I used to find it incredibly hard as a young guy. I'd get into my car and automatically turn on the radio with pop music and full blast and you know everything I could possibly do just to keep the activity up there and it took me ages and years and years to be able to to get in the car and just for a moment to have nothing on at all just have silence Mm -hmm. It was excruciating. I would just be able to hang in there just for a very little time and then on it would go again. But as time went on, it does get easier. You know, you you just up the average, as it were. I'm not I'm not aiming to be perfect, but just up it. And in the early days, it's incredibly hard. You watch the clock and you know, tick, tick. when will this be over i've allocated you know this amount of time and it can be a short amount of time two minutes agony four minutes but as time goes on as the week you know you find that actually you really 
Yeah. Oh, it's over already. Right. Oh, I hope it's not going to end. Now that sounds very spiritual. It really isn't. And you know, habits of this kind are so you know easy to build up. It's not a hardship. And um, we've talked in previous podcasts about how to slow everything down. So um, I know that journey. I've been on that journey. I actually appreciate you guys' candor in you know, getting to some of the reality of it, that being in silence can be quite terrifying, um, in, in part because we, we have to deal with reality. And, and staying noisy, keeping noise in, in our lives works. It works really well to, to keep us from having to live in reality and deal with, you know, whatever we find there, um, particularly our own kind of heart and emotions and um, not uncommon for people to enter into silence and it bring lots of tears, uh, which I think is probably a really good thing. I see this as a very foundational discipline as, I mean, I'd almost not to put an order to things, but kind of prayer, it was really central in, in, in my mind, and then silence and solitude in terms of growing in some sort of depth. And I want uh, to maybe say a word against some of the statements I'll hear people make related to personality. So I'm, I'm an extrovert, I'm an introvert, you know, uh, or I've got, you know, I'm just, just not geared for it. And, and I actually think that's not accurate. Yeah. I just don't, I don't think that fits. Um, I think in, in, in one sense, the more difficult it is for us, the, the, the more we need it. I would think of silence and solitude is primarily about intimacy with God and what we find there. And I could maybe reference, I just went on a two-day solo camping trip. And just to be honest, I was terrified. I'm always terrified of that stuff. I know there's an emptiness, there's a loneliness, there's a void. And, and it, always, it always scares me a little, but I'm always glad I did it. I mean, it just, it just is so incredibly helpful. But see, you, you just said that it's terrifying, Nate, and I appreciate that. I, I really think that it's good for us to admit that it can be frightening to have to encounter ourselves, even after we've gotten our ideas about God sorted out, and we've learned that God is good and God is loving. Silence and solitude still means I have to encounter my own self without the distraction of something that's more comforting or more comfortable. So I, I think you're absolutely right about needing to face that with some tears. There, there is a lot of that 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 needs to needs to happen. For me, I'll, I'll be completely honest here and say that encountering myself honestly actually required some years of of therapy. I needed a therapist to help me delve into some some issues, particularly issues that arose um, from my childhood. And I didn't have a horrible childhood, but there were some deep-seated issues that just took some real unraveling, and I needed professional help to get there. Now, I realize not everyone necessarily will need that level of professional help, but I would say that almost everybody I know would benefit from it if only to be able to learn to be honest with yourself and learning that you can be good company, you and Jesus together really can can do well and that you can make it without the distraction because then you're in the company of two good people. Right. And the relief that comes when you can mm -hmm. do this. I don't know whether this is, you know, gender thing, but I certainly in the guys I speak to, 
the most frightening thing they can experience is to be alone with themselves mm-hmm. and do anything to get away from that. You know, watch anything, go online, try to keep occupied, keep busy. I know people who just keep active right up until the moment when they're so exhausted they fall asleep. <laughs> and, you know, because it's such a frightening... I'm reminded of the Henry Nowen piece mm-hmm. in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. I'm sure you're mm-hmm. aware yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. He says, in solitude, I get rid of scaffolding without friends to talk to, no calls to make, music to entertain, books to distract, just me, weak, sinful, broken, you know, just me. I mean, how reassuring that is that, you know, we're not the only ones who struggle with this. We're not the only ones. In fact, it's normal to struggle with Mm -hmm. this. But the relief when you can when you can wake up in the small hours, you've got a car journey. Oh, that's wonderful. Silence or whatever. I'm not surprised that Dallas Willard, when he was asked, you know, what are the sort of the core spiritual practices? He said silence and solitude and worship and um, study. But I mean, why waste two of the four are not doing anything. Why waste half of them on literally not doing no silence? Who'd want that solitude? Why would you bother? But it's this thing of coming to terms with ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's coming to terms with our frailty, our finiteness, these things that jump up and come at us. But if you can, it's such a liberating place to be. That's right. These resistance points, very, very normal, very human, but also incredible opportunities to grow. I had two thoughts. One is, as a beginning point, I find it really easier to be in silence with other people for some reason, to be in a group and go, let's let's do this together. Somehow that helps me, although that may seem kind of, you know, counter contrary. And the same thing I'd say is that it, it is possible to hold a space of silence and solitude while you're with others and, and being free from the need to talk and being able to kind of hold some of the space that you find in, in silence and solitude. And then the last thing I'd say is this is not about me and Jesus doing my thing. This is about intimacy with God that ultimately leads to connection with other people and my growth and my ability and capacity to love others well. So it's not just about being monks and, you know, disappearing. No, that's right, Nathan. And that's such a good point. The older I get, the more I feel that God's work in my life consists largely of making me safe. For other people, making me okay with myself so that I can then extend the love for my neighbor that Jesus would want me to have. That's helpful. That's helpful. Yeah. If I can come in on that, I mean, I, I think my kind of you know, struggles in the early days around this was the moving from activity to quiet. Mm-hmm. And it felt like a car and the old cars with a shift uh, gear where you crunch the gears. You're going from one (laughs) gear to the next if you've driven those cars. You know, it's a really bad experience. It's the moving with other people 
to the being on our own. That's the bit I found hard. When I get there, mm. oh, it's lovely. Mm-hmm. But that gear-crunching experience of moving my way through, I found a very helpful practice, one of the many, many, many practical ideas in the kind of barre spiritual formation um, handbook. Um, there's a practice that really cut me. There's one, one of them that says, take an hour to be with God. Make no demands, have no expectations. And I don't know what you think about that, but and an hour may be more than we can handle, but the idea of make no demands, have no expectations was such a shocking idea. But I thought the idea of being was to make demands and to have expectations. Surely we should go with a list of I need, I want, please will you help me. But to go to God for an hour, make no demands, have no expectations. And it was just a beautiful experience. And relax and listen and develop this ear, this ability to hear him speak. So it's not all remarkable. It's not all, you know, a high-powered stuff. There's a quietness there. An awful lot is not remarkable, huh? (laughs) When I think about things being not remarkable, I find myself really taken by a question sent in by Blake, who is listening to Friends in Formation and really journeying through some renovary materials. But he says that in seeking and walking out apprenticeship in this season of life, he's found it difficult to Sabbath well. And then he says, for background, my kiddos are three and a half and two and a half years old. (laughs) And he and his wife have found it difficult to know how to Sabbath well, even though he says he's done a good bit of reading around this topic but has found that no one particularly addresses how to observe a Sabbath very well when you have little kids. You know what? I know why people have not particularly addressed it. It's because it's hard. <laughs> it's, a lot, it's a lot easier to do things like solitude and silence and Sabbath rest when you don't have little kids. But I got to tell you why this question really appealed to me. I'll tell you a short story. When I was a little girl, I grew up going to church. I mean, we went to church all the time. We went to church on Sunday mornings. We went to church on Sunday nights. We went to church on Wednesday nights and other times in between. So we were big on what we thought was keeping the Sabbath. But for my grandfather and my father, keeping the Sabbath meant getting up, getting ready for church, driving the car to church, driving home sitting on the front porch, coming in to eat dinner, going back to the front porch, right? And to be fair, they didn't mow the, the yard that day. They, you know, they, they, it was a day of rest. For my mother and my grandmother, it meant getting up extra early, getting the dinner started before you wake up the children, then get the children up, get the children dressed, get the children turned out properly, into the car on time, getting the children off to their Sunday school classes, picking them up from the Sunday school classes. And in between, you went and taught Sunday school yourself. 
then watching the children during the actual service, right? Keeping everyone in line, taking a child out to discipline if necessary, going home, rushing to the kitchen, tying on an apron over your good Sunday dress, getting the rest of the meal prepared, getting it on the table, serving it to everyone. And then when everyone's done, going to the kitchen and doing the dishes. And once all the dishes were done, then you could go sit on the front porch. So this is why this question appeals to me. I think there's there's a lot in this. It makes me aware that Sabbath keeping is easy to think of as an individual pursuit, but it's actually a community pursuit. No one gets to keep Sabbath all by himself or herself. For instance, I have a friend who refuses to go out to eat on a Sunday because she doesn't want anyone to have to work on a Sunday, including the person who would be serving her food at a restaurant. Now, that may be an extreme position, but but I understand her heart. How does one person keep Sabbath when there are other things that need to be done? And if you throw those kids in there, then there's a lot that needs to be done. So now, gentlemen, you're exhausted from hearing my story, but The gender roles and sexism really just so destructive. And they didn't mean to be sexist, right? It's just what fell to the mom and the grandma, right? right? I'm glad this question comes up because in a lot of ways, this is a forgotten commandment. People will be, you know, quite intent on different, you know, 10 commandments of sorts, but but very easy to uh, let this one go in part because it's an American virtue to let it go you know, kind of a workaholic, a boundaryless life and just go, go, go ties in with our last question. That's the default culturally. And the church and Christian folks are no different in ways can, can be worse. So it, it's extremely important. And then there's that balance of, you know, legalism and grace. And, and I've known folks who are extremely legalistic with Sabbath it has to be on a Sunday, it starts at midnight, you know, and 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 that doesn't seem 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 right right either. I want to mess a little bit with the the kid issue and and share a little about at least how I engage with Sabbath. Um, and I'll give a disclaimer that I don't I don't know that this is right. And do feel free to correct me. The way I've come to define it is is to have an agenda free day. Like most days, I come with my list whether it's a day off or not. And I kind of am enslaved to this impossible list uh, each day. And so to me, a Sabbath is no list, no agenda. I'm open to what God might have for me in that day. And with kids, you can do that. You can have an agenda-free day and, and still take care of your kids, but also invite them into you know, a time of play. So I don't think it has to be mutually exclusive that Sabbath has to look a certain way when, you know, God's very well aware of your life circumstances. But I'd go back to what you were saying, James, it's wasting time with God, that doing nothing is maybe doing something, maybe something really, really significant. No, I love it. I love what you say there. It reminds me of the wonderful book by James Orion Smith, Embracing the Love of God, which was one of his earliest books, actually. And he touches on this issue in that book. And he says something along the lines of Sabbath is really about not doing any purposeful work. So you can kick leaves 
on a street with you know children that's okay but to sweep them up <laughs> and to clear them up is work so you've got to work out what that's about i mean i don't think he's wanting us to be hard and fast with it you know but the idea of is don't do any significant work i think that's a helpful guide because it's so easy to fall into legalism of course the Jewish Sabbath began the evening. That clock of 12 o'clock isn't working. It's the evening. It says the sun goes down the following evening. I love this bit in Dallas Willard's book, A Life Without Lack. At the very end of it, he talks about how to spend a day with um, you know, Jesus. Oh, yes, that's a wonderful, um, yeah. a it's wonderful, a wonderful journey. piece. And I wonder... Yeah, I wonder whether that applies here, how to spend a Sabbath with Jesus. And and his point is, it's in the preparation. It's preparing. I mean, he's saying, prepare yourself for that attitudinal change, you know, not doing anything of valuable work. He's saying, you know, prepare. And and I think you're saying that, Nate, you know, it's about thinking about what can we do that will not have you know, structure and agenda. But in some ways you have to you have to plan to not plan, if you see what I mean. <laughs> well, and and what you're touching on there, James, is really important when we go back to Blake's question about how to do this with little kids. Because first of all, there are lots of things about having children that small that are simply not planable. And, and there will be failures. There will be times that you've, you've planned, you've prepared, you've made ready for Sabbath, and then first the three-and-a-half-year-old and then the two-and-a-half-year-old will wake up in the middle of the night throwing up. And, you know, it, plans will be out the window. So first of all, giving yourself lots and lots of grace is so important. But second, I think in particular planning your heart as the parent and planning the hearts of the children, of explaining to them why you would want to take a Sabbath. And in ways, in words that little children can understand, just say, we're not, we're not going to do fancy things on this day. We're not going to have big meals. We're going to have something really simple to eat. And we're going to have time together and time when we can just talk to God. And it'll be simple. So I think part of it is reducing some expectations. And this was the problem with the, with the whole idea of Sabbath being the day that you go to church back when, you know, when I was a little kid and it was all about the production of church, which in some ways actually shut down Sabbath rather than amplifying it. I think Sabbath is a time to be at rest with God. And learning to trust God is something that little kids, I think, can really get into. Jesus loved the little children, and little children love Jesus. So just learning to trust God, I got to tell you, it reminds me of a hymn. I know you're you're surprised. <laughs> but we couldn't have enough. <laughs> there was a, it's actually a children's hymn from the late 19th century that we would sing when I was a little girl. It's called, Can You Count the Stars? Do you guys know this hymn? It says, can you count the stars of evening that are shining in the sky? Can you count the clouds that daily over all the world go by? 
God the Lord, who doth not slumber, keepeth all their boundless number, yet he careth more for thee. Yes, he careth more for thee. Little kids, I think, can get into the idea that God cares for them. And so life doesn't have to be always about mom and dad scrambling and panting and trying to get ahead. There can be a day where there's no trying to get ahead because we are safe and well in God's care. Very helpful. Yeah. It reminds me of my own childhood because the most significant thing in the forming of my own spirit as a child was that love, that security. Yes, we did go to church. Yes, I did go to you know children's church and everything else, but it wasn't it wasn't so much what they taught me. It was the attitude and the spirit in which they, they, they operated and they cared for me. It was very obvious that, and that you know, space was important. So it's the things that aren't said as much as the things that are. But um, yeah, what an interesting issue this is. I'm, I'm glad you brought up, Rochelle, the idea of failure with, with kids. And, you know, <laughs> we try too hard with this. We'll end up frustrated and miss the entire point. Um, it, it, maybe the two things I'd say is, and you're bringing this up, mm-hmm. kids know how to rest. They know how to play. Mm-hmm. They know how to be. And somewhere along the way that we forget, there's a lot, a lot to learn in there. The other thing that I wish, like anything, I'm sure someone told me, but I didn't catch it or believe it when my kids were little, is that it's a season it'll pass. And this season has unique opportunities that other seasons won't. And in in one sense, it's a crucible. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. don't waste the experience. Don't waste the struggle and misery. Uh, uh, Things will be different later, but you'll learn something in this that you, you may not later. The last thing I'd say is just a very big picture practical God designed human beings to need rest. That's right. God did not need to do that, but God did. And so mm-hmm. we, we don't need to fight that. We even can embrace that. It's not a luxury. It's, it's, it's a legitimate need. And I think we should treat it as such. And the irony is that the more I take this seriously, the more time I find I have which makes no sense. But if I'm you know, faithful to, to take space, to, to, to rest, to be present before God, I find that my to-do list are not quite as uh, oppressive. Okay, here we are. One more thing to ask. I mean, we have so enjoyed, haven't we, all the people who sent in things. It's such a fascinating to watch what people are asking and and sometimes we get things coming at us which are picking up on previous discussions we've had and here's one we want to talk a bit about the church we had a very interesting discussion last time about church so people have come back to us and challenged us on a few things and asked some things as well so here's one which we won't say who it is again it's sometimes it's easier if we keep off that so they don't get you know spotted in their church right. but there's but there's it's you james right this is you. it's me <laughs> um, you weren't gonna say that Nathan. Um, so here's one that someone was asking about 
the church? What is our view on the state of the church in the United States, which um, is quite a big topic, actually. Um, and there's lots we could say, building on what we said previously. But it came down to this, or one of the aspects was this. My adult children are walking away from church. What do I do? do how do i handle it you know this is a, a story of people who are being committed to church who believe in the church but their own children are walking away don't feel at home there what comments have we got on the state of the church but also picking up this issue of you know children and and how do parents you know handle that so any thoughts on that would be gratefully received, I think. Well, it's a big question, isn't it? And as the, as the mother of young adult children, my heart beats with this listener. It's interesting, I think, and humbling to consider that our children may turn away from what we reared them in. So, for instance, if I served my children oatmeal every morning for breakfast and told them that really oatmeal is the best way to start the day. There, there is no better, no better food for them to eat. And then when they grew up, they immediately said, oh, thank God, I never have to have oatmeal again. My mother ruined this for me. Now, that's a trite example, but my heart would be in that a little bit. Do you see what I mean? I would be sad that they turned away from something that I thought was good for them. And that's oatmeal. That's nothing. But if they turn away from what I raised them in, in terms of walking with God, this is, a, this is an issue that's so deeply heartfelt that I find myself thinking it, it bears a lot of thought for all of us, not just for the parents of young adults, but for all of us who are part of a church. What, what are we doing with our churches that would make young adults not want to be part of it? Yeah, I can pick up, pick up there, take maybe a different angle or maybe spin a little bit. There's a, a, a phrase that I hear in recovery communities that goes something like this. If you want to know what your character defects are, um, get married. If you'd hmm. like to see your character defects run around and talk to you, um, have children. Uh, <laughs> children, in a lot of ways, are mirrors and mirrors mm -hmm. to to us, and can have a prophetic voice of sorts. So, I, I think we should listen. Young folks are leaving in droves, and I wish we would listen to what that's about, rather than try and coerce or manipulate or entertain. To uh, there's something in there. They're good people seeking to follow Jesus that have absolutely no use for the church. And that's significant. And I think it's worthy of a reflection of what are we actually offering people rather than just assume something's wrong with them and we need to, you know, kind of kind of coerce them. That's right, Nathan. That knee jerk, there must be something wrong with them if they're leaving the church, is probably part of what's wrong with the church. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I, I mean, I think I, I think um, we just need to do a shout out for young adults are invigorating churches as well, and they're bringing a lot of energy and ideas and challenge to 
to you know churches it's such a shame if they feel they're not empowered or heard because um i mean you know jesus's words of at the end of the sermon on the mount are the wise person is the person who hears my words and teaches other people to do it no that's not what he said he didn't say the wise person is the person who goes to church every week he he said the wise person is the person that hears my words and obeys them puts them into practice so this is deeply subversive because i thought the power ought to lie with the person in charge at church with the phd with the doctorate with the ordination with the theological education but the jesus's words are so subversive when he says the wise person is the person who hears my words and does them well that upsets a lot of things here and i want to say to young adults if you're hearing the words of Jesus and obeying them putting them into practice we want to hear you i want to hear you you can teach me whatever age we're at and Dallas sometimes would say the pull of our churches is not always i think he actually said that the you know a pull of our churches is not to a deeper relationship with Jesus i think he meant that it's not always to that the pull of our churches you know may not be pushing us in that direction so there's something deeply subversive going through here i'm very interested to hear i want to hear i want to hear i don't think not going to church is necessarily the same as not following jesus i'd want to advocate for church i've done that in our previous broadcast so i'm up for that and i argue why and sometimes it's not helpful to go it may not be helping you and i don't want to legalistically push in i want to say pick what you can you know i said once before if we're hungry we'll eat off any plate you know if we're hungry for jesus we'll find something we'll find something in the church service but i'm sympathetic to those that say i'm done here i'm done here what would you guys say you know, practically, right? There's an ache. There's there's a lot of pain. My kids aren't eating oatmeal. They want nothing. To, no, they're criticizing oatmeal. They're, you know, practically, what does a person do with that? I want to stay friends with, you know, them. I don't want to have a argument over it. There's a wonderful article that Dallas Willard did. It was a kind of a reconstruction with somebody of this, you know, who was walking away from church. And, and, you know, he said, encourage them to work with what they do believe to start there, not push them to the things they can't believe. I mean, you can't make yourself believe things you don't believe. So work with what you can build from there and parents who can sensitively sympathetically understand it's a beautiful thing to see that so definitely you start with that yes and i I would add to that remember that your children are your children regardless of their church membership or lack thereof your 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 obligation to to be a parent will never end your interest in their lives will never end hopefully your ongoing relationship will not end. So keep talking. You're right. 
James, start with where they are. Ask questions, not in a condemning way, but in an interested way. And I will say, also tend to your own spirit. Make sure that you are keeping yourself close to God so that you are listening for what God might want you to say to your child. And I'm pretty sure it's not going to be, you idiot, you're not going to church anymore. I think what God will be speaking is more comfort and more reassurance of His love, not only for you, but for your child. It is really helpful and good to remember that just because someone has walked away from church does not mean they have walked away from Jesus. And if someone has walked away from Jesus, it doesn't mean that Jesus has walked away from them. Even someone who doesn't believe in God is still a beloved child of God. God cares. God will not walk away from your child. If the child walks away for a while, it doesn't mean that God's going anywhere. So I would say keep the lines of communication open. Talk about what you can. And when God has done something particularly meaningful in your own life and you have an opportunity to share it, share it. But share it without guile. Share it without an agenda. Funny that we talked about letting go of your agenda with Sabbath keeping. And here again, it's letting go of the agenda. Let, let, let God woo your adult child rather than trusting the, ch- the church to do it. I like that. Trusting our children to God. Some of what, what I'm hearing in there is our kids have their own lives to live. We can't live it for them. And some things they have to discover on their own, many things. And a lot of times we discover things getting our teeth kicked in uh, a a little bit. You know, I'm kind of, but my oldest is 20 and I'm playing the long game. Like I'm, I'm not getting hung up on, at least that's where I'm at now. And just, I'm, I'm in this for the long haul and people grow, people change. We do our best to love and listen. Well, that's right. That's right. And just a couple of other thoughts from me. I mean, the brain and the human development at the age of 16 to 24 is a massively changing you know, stage. So we want to work with that. You know, things are happening a lot inside people at that age. You know, the game isn't over till the game's over. You know, that's a, that's, it's never over till it's over. And the other thing is um, a book that I'm sure you've heard of, um, but but I just offer it again, is James Fowler's book, Stages of Faith, which has been so interesting. It's, it's not a Christian book in that sense, but it is a very helpful book. Um, in Stages of Faith, the psychology of human development and the quest for meaning. It's been out for ages, but it's a classic book on how faith develops and what some people can interpret as a resistance is actually entering a deeper stage, if you see what I mean. Walking away from something and they're on the cusp of finding something even bigger beyond. So I just offer that as an idea. Yeah, and when when it comes to the state of the church, I like to think that the future of the church will involve people who went through times of their faith deepening, of not being content with an inherited faith 
but going through the tough wrestling. I think we can trust our children to God. And if they come back to the church or if they stay away, I am certain God's going to be working in their lives. I think the future of the church will involve people who have wrestled in ways that their parents didn't, but that God, as Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think we should come back to that question because there's this massive deconstruction going on in the church in the United States today. I agree. I think we should. I think it's a challenge for all of us. I think it's a challenge for Prenavare in the work we do. We're passing down the generations. We're passing down the age groups. So that's important for the topic. But we're doing that in the context of a, a rapidly changing church. And if that was big enough a challenge, we're doing it in the context of a rapidly changing world culture. So we're interested in that. And if people out there want to be a part of that, we'd be glad to hear. Please do come and join this. This is, this is a significant issue. Thank you for listening to another episode of Friends in Formation. We do so appreciate your questions. Uh, in fact, if we use your question on air, we will happily send you an official Friends in Formation coffee mug. You can send us your questions to friends at renovare.org. That's friends at renovare.org.